We're in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18 this morning. Give you a moment to kind of get there. Uh, again, just want to remind you of kind of where we're going with this. We're looking at uh, the community of faith, uh, trying to think through some of the aspects of what happens or what should be taking place uh, in us as a community of people who believe. Uh, we are not just individual believers, but we are meant to be a community. We are part of the body of Christ. We are part of a living temple, all of those sort of uh, community metaphors that Scripture gives us. And uh, we have to think through that. But I want us to think through that biblically. And uh, that's where James comes in handy. So let us read, starting in uh, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. Sorry, his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, you would open our ears this morning, that we might hear your word, soften our hearts that we might believe your word this morning, and renew your image in us that we might obey your word even more. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who saves sinners and sanctifies saints. Amen. Sometimes it amazes me that some comedians can make a career off of one phrase. Flip Wilson is one of those guys. So those of you who are too young to know who Flip Wilson is, <laughs> which may be most of you raised on Chris Rock and uh, Eddie Murphy, his catchphrase was, the devil made me do it. Okay? He was a little before Bill, Cros- Bill Cosby, but not too much. Okay? The devil made me do it. And what he's, he's doing is he's expressing a sentiment that, uh, and he's actually making fun of that sentiment. I don't think he actually believed that. But there is a, a tendency that takes place in the human heart to want to shift the blame for our, our sin somewhere besides us. We see this taking place with the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. What happens? God addresses Adam. Adam, it's the woman. The woman you gave me. He blames God for his sin. And what does she do? 
the devil, the serpent. He deceived me. So there in the garden from the very beginning is this tendency to want to push off the guilt or the, the responsibility for our sin onto somebody or something else. And guess what? That hasn't died yet. That still takes place. Okay? We still reckon with this idea, this aspect. And there were people apparently among those church, those Christians who have been removed from Jerusalem during the persecutions that took place, uh, that had gone to places like Antioch, uh, to blame someone else for their sin. Big idea this morning is that, is that we are to look without ourselves for power over the temptations within. Last week we talked about trials. And we talked about the process that takes place. There's this uh, mechanism that God is using, using trials with when we respond with love and trust. Okay, this is not an automatic process. But when we respond to these trials with love and trust in God's promises, we endure those trials. In enduring those trials, we move towards maturity. And in the end, we, we receive life. Okay, that's what we looked at last week. We're going to look at a very different process this week. It goes in the other direction, but uh, we'll get there. These trials also, in addition to potentially producing maturity in us, these trials also produce temptation toward sin. Okay, Remember, the Greek word for trial can also mean temptation. It, it, you have to look at the context and see what's going on. And so it's interesting that if you look at the King James Version and you, in the translation and you, you look at this chapter, instead of seeing trials in the first half of this text, what you're going to see is temptations. Verse 12 in particular is very interesting. Is it referring to temptations or is it referring to trials? And Though I would really love for it to mean temptation, I think it really is referring to the idea of trial in verse 12, precisely because it talks about one who has stood the test. Okay? So, I think it's really talking about trials. But he, he but James is now shifting, and at sort of a hinge verse, he's shifting away from the aspect of trials and now into the reality of temptation. Okay? This word from which both of these come, refers to the idea of pressure. But that pressure is from is very different in how it takes place and how it shapes, what it looks like. Okay? Trial is is pressure from without. Okay? It's almost like a submarine. What happens when you put the submarine down in the water? You have the pressure from the water trying to cave in the submarine, right? That's a trial. It, it, pressure is from outside seeking to crush us, to, to destroy us, to, to halt us. That's trial. Temptation is different in that the pressure is really from within, not from without. It's really from within. There is a pressure that we experience, that we feel to move towards sin. It's pressing us towards sin. Okay? So... <clears throat> While we can say that God brings trials, James clearly reminds us that we cannot say that God tempts us. This is the great temptation that we, one of the great temptations that we experience in the midst 
of trial. That somehow God is not just trying us, but tempting us to do sin. We see this, he says that God cannot be tempted. It is a question of his nature and that he is all good all the time. All holy all the time. All righteous all the time. All just all the time. And so God, because he is perfectly good and and holy, he cannot experience temptation. This, however, this as as an aside to the kind of this, this is part of what brings us to the reality of the need for Jesus to have been fully human. Because in order to be our Savior, he also was to be tempted. And in order to be tempted... He had to be human. Just as the scripture says. Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so the humanity of Jesus is one of the things that is necessitated by this text. He had to be fully human to experience and to resist temptation. Not only can God not be tempted, but James says that God, because He is good, cannot tempt anyone to sin. It would violate His nature to do so. God is not going to look at someone with high cholesterol and go, do you want the bacon? Come on. It smells good. And I bet it tastes better. Or for you ladies here, wouldn't you like a little more chocolate? (laughs) Wouldn't that sound good right about now? Chocolate. Don't think about the calories, really. Chocolate. God's not going to tempt anybody. Joseph is tempted by the chocolate, not the bacon. (laughs) I can tell in his face. (laughs) Okay? But God, God does not tempt anybody. Okay, this is a... A theological impossibility. But the, but James is getting to that idea that these trials do open us up to temptation to commit sin or sins. And we go to the part that we sort of skipped over last week, and that is the poor brother and the rich brother. Their circumstances include tests, trials. It is difficult to be poor and I know most of you probably don't believe this, it is difficult to also be rich. Okay? And within those trials, there is also temptations that will arise in the heart of both the poor man and the rich man. Okay? Both of them need to boast in God's grace and not in their place in society. Notice what he says. He commands them to boast. Isn't that interesting? I thought boasting was bad, right? Well, depends what you're boasting in. And he says to the, to the poor man, don't boast. I mean, he says, boast in your exalted position. And you're like, what exalted position? You're broke. The position they have by grace. The grace of God. He tells the rich man, don't boast in your riches, 
But he says, boast in your lowly position, your humiliation. So James is like Jesus, sort of turning the tables on things. He probably has in mind something like Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so we find that rich people in this text are tempted to do a few things. They are tempted to trust in their wealth. We see this as well in Proverbs 30. He said, he asked for two things. Give me neither poverty nor riches. He says, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And so rich people have a temptation to forget God, to think that they have all they need in their riches, in their power, in their influences, and to forget God. And James reminds them with this, this illustration that sounds like something Jesus would use, okay? Different illustrations in Paul sorts of, sort of uses, this illustration of the field. Oh, those flowers look great like now, but wait until that Tucson sun gets to them. Dead. That grass might look good in February, but wait until that July heat gets that grass. Dead. That's riches. They are transitory. They are temporary. They do not last. They do not satisfy. And enjoy them while you have them, but don't bank your life on them. There's a very big difference. Okay? The same thing, the poor person is tempted to despair. He is tempted to covet riches. And as it mentions in Proverbs 30, it says, Don't make me poor lest I steal and profane the name of my God. They, have a, they are tempted to steal to get that which they want. Poverty, just like riches, has temptations. And so, trials... Pressure from without often come with temptation, that pressure from within to commit sin. So let's move on to the second part of where James is going with this. Okay, not only do trials produce temptation to sin, but our hearts are sin's willing accomplice. James is kind of interesting in that he never talks about the evil one. Oh, I'm sure James believes in the devil. But he doesn't blame the devil for anything. He he turns the spotlight onto people themselves. Sort of like Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. Okay? God is not the source of temptation. James says that you are the source of your temptation. I didn't know I was doing that to myself. <laughs> Okay, we we don't really respond. I was sitting in Sunday school and listening to uh, uh, Paul Tripp talk a little bit about marriage and about sin, and I, I thought um, we've got an inner mobster in here. You know, this will become clear in a moment. Okay, what he does is he develops a pro- a process that's contrary to the one that we saw last week, contrary to God's process and trial, but. Let us let it be known. James says, 
when someone is tempted, not if someone is tempted. There is a reality. Just as you, just as trials are inevitable, so is temptation inevitable. It will come. And so when it comes, you have to know certain things. And let me give you the big picture of this in that uh, you, you have, I'll go this way instead of that way this time. Okay. Trial exposes our desires. Because of these desires, we enter into temptation. We then indulge those temptations in committing sin. And instead of life being at work in us, death is at work in us. And so instead of moving here towards maturity in life, here we're moving towards immaturity, impurity, and death. It is foolish for us to think, James would say, that we only can experience this. This is a reality. This is a possibility for us as well. And we must be very careful. So, it starts with desire. The word that is used it does not necessarily mean evil desires. It doesn't necessarily mean something that is sinful. It could be something that is, in a sense, very good. However, because it is the uppermost desire, it is what we love most in that moment. And if it is not God, we're loving something that we shouldn't be loving more uh, that much. We're loving it more than we ought. Does that make sense? R.C. Sproul talks about um, the fact that when you sin at that particular moment, you are loving that sin and what it offers you more than you love God at that moment. Okay, And so there is this thing we call desire. And so temptation begins when we have desires that are different from God's desires in that particular moment. I'm going to give you an example of all this after I lay it all out. Okay, So temptation is this eternal pressure to satisfy that desire. Don't you feel that when you're tempted? Isn't there sort of that... Pressure inside, like you're gonna, you feel like you might explode if you don't get what you want. Okay, don't you feel this? You should. This should be. That shouldn't be like a mystery to any of us. Okay, but this is not yet sin. The experience of temptation is not yet sin. Otherwise, what would have taken place? Jesus would have sinned, because he was tempted in every way, just like us, but without sin. So it is possible for you to experience temptation and not be sinning. What matters is what you do with the temptation. What happens when you are in that state of temptation? What next? Is it put to death or do you satisfy it? James O's father, he talks about how we have been dragged away. I think the NIV gets this, this term a little better than the ESV dragged away by our desires, and that's what that idea of the little mobster within. It's almost like we're, we're knocked on the head, tossed in the trunk, and driven off to the place where we didn't really want to go, but we go there anyway. Okay, We're dragged. Okay, There's a power that takes place with these desires. And not only does it drag us away, but also entices us. Okay, It, be, it makes itself appealing to us. 
it offers us some sort of benefit while of obviously denying the consequences, okay? Which results in the fact that we are deceived. Now, most translations will put that, dear brothers and sisters, don't be deceived, with the part about every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of, he- of heavenly lights. It's probably, most likely, connected with the reality of the process of temptation. Because ultimately sin seeks to deceive us. If we, you know, the fair practices, you know, if, if, you, if you really knew what, what, what sin would bring you, would you do it? And so what sin does is it lies. It really sells the good stuff. The fleeting pleasures of sin. Oh, look what you're going to get. While ignoring the bad stuff. Okay. It entices us and deceives us. It tricks us into thinking that that it satisfies us in a way that God can't. And even worse, it, it tricks us and deceives us into thinking that what we want is good and will bring good. What does this look like? There is a... Almost every evening in my home, this is played out. Some of you homes, it might be the same thing. Some of you who are expecting children, expect this. The bedtime routine begins. We have goals, man. (laughs) We're tired. We want the little people to go to bed. We want peace and quiet. We want rest. All right? And so... We're trying to get this to accomplish as quickly as humanly possible. What do they want? For it not to be accomplished whatsoever. <laughs> they don't want to go to bed. They don't want rest. No matter how tired they are, they don't want to go. And so there's this struggle that begins to take place. But it doesn't end when we put them to bed, you see, because now I'm sitting in front of the TV and we're like wiped out and we're both brain dead, you know? And my, and my thing, rest. I want rest. I want time alone with Amy. I want to, I don't want to think about a thing. And what happens? Somebody somewhere has a desire that includes walking down the stairs and bothering me. My desire is not being met. Sin breaks out on all kinds of fronts. (laughs) That's what it looks like. You're sitting there. You're not anticipating anything bad to happen, but it does. And suddenly, you have been taken captive, dragged away, deceived, and sinning. James here in this chapter is addressing individuals because he's talking about any one of you. In chapter 4, he's going to get to the reality of how it breaks out in in the whole congregation, in the community of faith. And so uh, that that sort of fills in that idea of my my own family, you know, because my kids have desires and they're in conflict with my desires and here happens the fun. Okay? So whole communities can be tempted. Whole communities can be deceived. Sin, James says, when it is full grown, when, you know, he's contrasting it with the maturity in verse 4. When it, when it, when it reach, reaches fruition, 
Instead of bringing life, it brings death. Just like Peter talks about in his first letter, chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions or desires of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so they present themselves as sort of for your own good, but in reality they're waging war against your soul to destroy you. They're like a sleeper cell. They look normal, but they're waiting to explode the bomb on the bus. Okay? And so James is painting this very dismal picture of humanity, of people who are at the whim of their lusts, who are dragged here and there by their desires. And so if we're going to look in, we're not going to find help for our sin, but we find the reason for our sin. Because you are your own worst enemy. But there's good news here. Have no fear. God provides the power to withstand temptation. Our hope is not found within, it is found without. That hope is found in God Himself and in His promises, His gracious gospel promises. It is outside of us. We must remember something like 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Don't you need to hear that sometimes? You're normal. Sometimes sin uses shame to keep you in chain, in chains, saying, you're sicker than everybody else. You're more twisted than everyone else. You're a worse sinner than everyone else. Paul says, no temptation except that which is common to man. You're just like everyone else. The details may be slightly different, but you're just like everybody else. Okay? But God is faithful. He points them, uh, the Corinthians to the faithfulness of God, and he says that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Our problem is that because we have been whacked on the head and enticed. We don't look for the way out. We look for the satisfaction of the desire. We're not thinking about the faithfulness of God. We're deceived into thinking about the faithfulness of our sin. God, unlike sin, actually does, however, deliver on His promises. That's the... that. This is one of those things that has boggled me for years, and then now suddenly it's like, oh yeah, now I understand this. That's why he talks about every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, with whom there is no shadow of change. There's no transitoriness. He's consistent. He is faithful. What he does is good. Sin is not faithful. Sin lies in his shifting sand. He's contrasting the reality, the surety, the faithfulness of God with our fleeting desires, our deceitful desires. He only brings good, not evil. Sin sin only brings evil, not good. He goes beyond that. He says, this father, by his own choice, 
gave us birth. There's a new principle of life that is now in us. Regeneration, which enables us, in part, to resist temptation. God is in the process of renovating us. Jesus talks about it in terms of yeast. A little bit of yeast works its way through the dough. So in regeneration, that little bit of grace works through the whole person. Okay, It's a process that begins uh, in, in our conversion. It is the reason for our conversion. Okay, But it's not yet complete. But there's something great here he mentions. He reminds us that we are just the first fruits. That he puts this within the cause. People say James is not a theologian. Really? He puts this within the context of the cosmic renewal that is going to take place when Jesus returns. He doesn't spell all that out. He expects you to get it. <laughs> but there it is. Precisely with the idea of first fruits. It starts with the conversion of sinners and it will be completed when Jesus returns. Okay? All of creation is going to be renewed. And so our regeneration and sanctification are the evidence that God has initiated His good gospel purposes in our lives. But that's not all. That's not the only thing. That is not sufficient for you to resist temptation. He talks about the word of truth. The word of truth was the means, he says, for that rebirth. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God, the gospel, to regenerate us. But not only that, he uses it to sanctify us. It is the same word used by that same Spirit that helps us to uncover the deception of temptation. The only way to combat the lies of your desires is with the truth of the Scriptures. That's it. When they, they teach people how to distinguish between a counterfeit bill and a real bill, do they give them counterfeit bills? They give them real bills. You must know the truth so that you can see the lie. We must be people of the truth so that we can expose the lies of our own hearts. This is so, so important. I was there last week. I'm here again. And I'll be here again. <laughs> Word sacrament. It is this same word that, as John Owen talks about in his great book on temptation, that builds a garrison of gospel promises against that temptation. It is that word which deals with the spiritual amnesia or identity amnesia that Paul Tripp was talking about this morning. 
It is God's word that tells us we are justified. It is God's word that tells us we are adopted. It is God's word that tells us all of these things about our new identity in Christ Jesus. You're not going to find that in your desires. You're not going to find what Christ has done for you and is doing in you and is going to do through you in your desires. You will only find it in the Word of God. The Word of God is not sufficient for your sanctification. But it is necessary for your sanctification. If you're not in the Word of God, you are not going to make progress against the temptations that plague your soul. Okay? Just because you read the Bible doesn't mean that you're going to, be, you're going to get an automatic pass on temptation. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that you will make no progress if you neglect God's Word. It is His means of grace for us in this. Reading the Scripture is necessary, but it must also be believed. We must believe what it says, and we must begin to do what it says. For instance, 1 Corinthians 10. I already read that part. If we believe it, then part of what we will do is look for the way out He has provided. We will look for the means of escape from our temptations. We will do that. So that we will, as, as Peter says in his fourth, uh, the fourth chapter of his first letter, so that we will live for the rest of our time in the flesh no longer for human passions or desires, but for the will of God, which we will only know when we read the Scriptures. So, brothers and sisters, each of us is going to face pressure within each day. Probably more than once each day. Numerous times each day, you will feel this pressure to follow your own desires in the pursuit of satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ. Those desires can crowd out God in your thoughts. They can deceive you. They can lead you down dangerous roads. Indulging in this temptation can leave you in bondage to particular sins and you can reap misery and potentially possibly death. The power to change is not found inside of you. It is found in Jesus and the Gospel. God must help you in the battle against temptation. He offers the resources, but it, it kind of, He's bouncing back to us again. There's this question. Are you living in dependence upon the sufficiency of Christ? Or are you still deceived into thinking that you can handle that inner mobster? You can handle that monster within. Let us pray. Father, there is no denying 
that each of us experiences temptation. And that as Christians, it can derail that process of maturity that you have laid out for us. We know the pain of having lied to ourselves. We know the pain of falling for the same old line. We know the disappointment of giving in to the same familiar temptations. And in the midst of that pain and shame and guilt, we look for someone to blame, not wanting to admit that the buck stops with us. So instead of looking to you with blame and anger, help us to look to you for help. Not after we've indulged, but when we feel tempted, when we feel the pressure. Help us to become experts in exposing the lies of our desires with your word. Help us to cling to Jesus, just like Jacob clung to the leg of the angel until he was blessed. Let us cling to Jesus until help comes from the throne of grace. And we ask this in the name of our great high priest, who was tempted as we are and yet sin not. Jesus, the Messiah. Amen.